You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So everybody, welcome to For the Love of Paul McGrath podcast. And I must admit, I'm really, really excited about a wonderful guest I have today. I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Laliga to the podcast today. The man that has interviewed everyone from Bobby Robson to Johan Cruyff. He's interviewed Del Bosque, Raddy Antic, and the wonderfully phenomenal and probably my favorite player ever, Ronaldo Luis Nazario de Lima, the real Ronaldo and not uh, in my view, I will say. I won't put you on the spot later on to ask you that question, but the man I'm interviewing you today, he has been given access to Spain's winning dressing room in 2010 and in 2012. And he's also been a man who's had the pleasure of interviewing Xavi, uh, interviewing Xavi while he was holding the Champions League trophy in 2011. You've seen this man on every publication this side of the Ural Mountains and probably some the other side as well and you've heard him on every frequency from AM to FM. Of course, I'm talking about the wonderful Graham Hunter is joining us today. Mr. La Liga, as I mentioned before, thank you so much for your time, Graham. Goodness me, uh, Neil, you've done your research. That was a hell of a... um... That was a hell of an intro. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> I will be honest with you. I, I, uh, you're somebody I've, um, I've read and I've watched and I've uh, followed, and uh, I was just delighted when you when you agreed to come on the podcast because, uh, as I say, um, it, you've always been my go-to guy in, for for La Liga information in general and a lot of continental football in general as well. So yeah, so this is a this is kind of a smiley moment for me. I will admit that. <laughs> um, I'm happy to help, and I'm listening. Um, I, I, I was explaining to you off air that you know very early because of um, I suppose certainly because of uh, Des Bremner, um, mm. but you you had a number of Scots in your ranks, uh, Ken McNaught obviously too, yes. and um, I was aware of Villa very young. Um, I, I, I was just the back of my first ever foreign travel um, immediately after they'd won the European Cup because I went to the World Cup in '82. Mm-hmm. And I met Villa fans there on my travels, and and you know I've been to Villa Park a number of times reporting, and uh, it's a state where by um, when they're doing well, I think it's healthy that the football is not centered around London and Manchester and Liverpool exclusively. So 
Um, although it's bumpy times for you and the club, I was happy to help when you asked me to. Absolutely. And, and as I say, I do really appreciate it. And I did, I couldn't think of anybody else that I would send a speculative uh, a speculative message to with regards to anything other than La Liga than yourself, should I say. And obviously, events this week have brought us towards uh, uh, La Liga and to Spain in general. And uh, I don't know if this is news to you, Graham, but Unai Emery is the manager of Aston Villa all of a sudden because uh, I don't think any of us realised that we would maybe be able to pry him away from Villarreal. But I suppose my, my initial question first is, was this a surprise in amongst the Spanish media, the, the, the Spanish kind of soccer for footballing fraternity? Was it, was it a surprise that he would leave and join Aston Villa? I think, I think it depends um, how you define the people you're asking the question about because there are many people who are busy in Spanish football who, who wouldn't be paying close attention to the situation at Villa and might have been surprised. And there are two things to say from my perspective. One, um, I got a tip off um, very early on that um, Christian Perzo had gone during the Chelsea game to speak to Todd Bowley and say, how, how did Pochettino interview? Why didn't you take him? What do you think of him? And that's before the film defeat. But before the film defeat, I also got told, I got a message from a very good tipster friend of mine who said, um, is also very high on, on Villa's list. Now, at that point, um, what I'd say to you is that no matter how it was reported in England at the time, um, last November, Emery said yes to Newcastle. Um, the fact that he ultimately didn't join them came down to when he went back to Villarreal for what was a Champions League match that midweek. He went to speak to the Reutsch family that run um, Villarreal. The father's a billionaire because of um, his industrial connections in both supermarkets and porcelain, um, bathroom porcelain manufacture. And... He lost his nerve, changed his mind. I don't know how you want to call it, but he decided that they were furious. They said, we've invested lots in you and in the players that you wanted us to bring. And now you're talking about leaving in the middle of a Champions League group that we want to get out of. He changed his mind. Newcastle had a private plane ready to fly him to training to take over that Friday to run the match that weekend. We're disappointed. But it only took from that pretty dramatic set of events, Neil, to the following April when doing an interview with Dermot Corrigan in The Athletic, Dermot asked him the right question, which was like, you know, are you really still intent on going back to the Premier League? Because the question needed to be asked because the Newcastle thing had really gone a little bit, um, had been left undisturbed since that November. Mm. It, it, it was a clear indication that after the Arsenal adventure, he was open to the idea. Dermot asked him the straight question and you know, I said very clearly, yeah, I think I'm a better coach now, I'm better prepared, my English is better. I will want to go back. Now, that was like, well, you're still on the contract for a long time to Villarreal, and you've already blotted your copy, but once at that stage, my mind was set, he's going to want to go back to England when the first correct chance comes along. Yeah. And in terms of the surprise factor you asked about, I think for many who were watching it, it was a surprise that it happened so quickly yeah. from the first whispers leaking out until Bula announcing it. But if you, many of those who listen to uh, the mighty Paul McGrath uh, podcast and <laughs> and your love of and your love of him, understandable love of him too, um, 
many might not have as much time as I do to watch Spanish football, but you, people would still be clear that having even as dramatic as Unai taking Villarreal, a time, you know, which come from a town of 40,000 inhabitants, to the Champions League semi-final, and not to the brink of beating Liverpool, but by half-time in the second leg, it was game on again, properly game on again. Um, anybody who thinks, well, think of the millions he earned, think of the prestige he's brought to Villarreal of knocking out Bayern Munich, knocking out Juventus, and thinking based on a quick look, that's him set for years, he's, he's fine, he's comfortable. The Reuch family don't work like that, particularly Reuch Senior, although the son is, is much more in charge of the area now. For them, it was essential, and I underline that word, that Villarreal finished top four and played Champions League football this season. They were pretty appalled that, as well as they did in the Champions League last season, they didn't qualify for anything more prestigious than the Europa Conference League. And as such, there, the, when you looked at Villarreal's performances this season, the times when they didn't win, when they should have done, the ease with which Barcelona beat them, the idea that this might be the the train that the MRA jumped on to go back to the Premier League immediately became clearer. It mm. was far easier to understand. And while I'm an, an MRA fan, make no bones about that whatsoever, had Unai Emery not taken, had he stayed on and not taken Villarreal to the Champions League um, at the end of this season, irrespective of it being the oddest season any of us can remember, because of the way the World Cup is, because of the concertina nature of the Champions League, etc. Et et really, in all honesty, had he not taken the Villarreal to the Champions League, I think he would have had his contract paid up. I, I think he'd have been asked to move yeah. on. So the yeah. fact that Villarreal have liberated now a payment of about €6 million, Euros, I can understand why Villarreal would have been... Although, as soon as the buyout clause is paid, Villarreal had no say in it, because it's written into his contract. Mm. If a club comes in, pays the €6 million, Euros, bingo, that's it. You can't stop the manager going. End of story. It's the same as a, a buyout clause for a footballer. I think there will be relative calm um, at the fact that they've brought in a manager who was the Fernando Reuch's son, was the, the main architect of signing Unai Emery. When he came in, they've not only won the Europa League, got the Champions League semi-final, but for those Villa fans who want to find out a little bit about Unai Emery, go back and watch the European Super Cup in Belfast against European champions Chelsea. Mm. And, a, and a pretty dangerous and nasty Chelsea at that side. You know, you... You know, you... You dropped your guard against them at your absolute peril. They were quick, they were hard, they were ferocious. And Villarreal drew 1-1 and went to penalties in Belfast in that European final too. So it, it, it was it, it was a big success. But given the way the season's going, given the way they've had a payoff for him, and given the speed with which they've been able to appoint Kiki Setien, not having to pay a fee to liberate him because he was out of work, I think Villarreal will be relatively content with what's happened. 
and that that's I, I think that's a fair synopsis looking at my my poor spanish and my and my good usage of uh, google translate brought me down a rabbit hole when it's one allowed it's allowed <laughs> one afternoon and i got the sense and i got the feeling that uh, yes that there was a kind of a uh, that everybody obviously it was a case of that they that they put their hands up and they said listen una emery has brought us the most success this club has ever had and and but we want to build in this success because we don't know how long um this uh, I suppose that the, the, we'd be on this train for, as you mentioned previously, and some fans were kind of getting restless and some fans were kind of, um, well, sorry, I won't say they were getting restless, but they were getting expectant that this was going to happen every year. And they were mentioning that the board were kind of mentioning things like that, or that it was kind of a feeling that, and if I'm not mistaken, did one of the patriarchs of that Roy's family, did they pass away recently or was there? Uh, no, was you, there some... you, you, you're right that uh, La Mesa, Janessa, was the the eminence grease the, the 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 club builder the team builder who 25 years ago uh, last may brought fernando Reutsch to the club bought the club for i think 250,000 euros the club had a capacity of about 3,500 in its stadium they were training in a public park they'd predominantly been second and third division and because Janesa brought Reutsch to the table uh, and Janessa stayed on as vice chairman and as a director of football from that day to when a year ago he retired because he had le leukaemia. Janessa, who did die last week, it, it was a man of brilliance. He was an extremely nice man, ultra passionate about football, not one of your modern businessmen, football people. And he was right, his right man, you're quite correct. And, and therefore, Emery's last game before joining your club was against Almeria when they had a ceremony before them. An informal ceremony before the game to, to mark the passing of Janessa. They were badly treated by the referee, their goal scorer, who equalised, was sent off for raising his jersey over his neck to pre present a message to Janessa. And they won in the fifth minute, and Emery and all the players gathered at the tunnel to. They're in a part, they're in a temporary stadium shared with Levante at the moment because their own stadium, you know, which is already pretty special compared to what was inherited, is being worked upon. And they just joined, pointed to the sky uh, in tribute to Janessa, who genuinely was a great man, a great man. Yeah. And um, so, so you're right that in a week where their loss has been still great, a loss of a friend and a leader, the loss of Una Emily becomes something that a well-functioning, well-planned, well-ordered club copes with. And mm -hmm. they have, and I think they will. And it's not the subject of this podcast, but in Kiki City, and I think they've brought a coach who's both adept and clever and plays a brand of football that the fans will like and I think there's reasonable optimism it's, it feels like <clears throat> the turning of a page rather than, rather than the ripping of a chapter out of a book um, you mentioned there about Kiki Santana as, as well, and you know that he brings that kind of level of experience. Una Emery obviously has experience as well. He took over uh, 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 the gig at Lorca Deportivo very, very young. I think he was injured, and he got an opportunity to train to to put together some training sessions with the, with that team at the time. But can you just talk briefly, I suppose, really on Emery's rise through Spanish football because he has had a couple of stops and he's made a couple of poor decisions, I suppose, like going to Spartak Moscow, which didn't exactly work out for him. But but what was his rise through Spanish football like? Would it be akin to somebody maybe like a, a, a Graham Potter? Would he be known as a tactical uh, type of coach when he was rising up through the ranks? Or, or what was the feeling about him? Was there always a feeling there could be something special? I think the old. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. As a player, you know, he, he you, you and I have to admire him because he was good enough to play a couple of hundred times professionally. Um, he was never a dominant first-team player or, or La Liga player ever. However, um, when he did retire, his progress was really, really quick. And I think the things that your listeners need to understand is that while I understand the, the comparison you made with Graham Potter, there are, there are other ways to look at it, and their personalities are, are massively different. Mm. What happened was when he reached Almeria, um, which is a, a port town down in Andalusia, and, and which really hadn't had any kind of even uh, flash in the pan prominence or, or, or success in its history prior to that, he took them up to La Liga, the top division, and he got them playing um, a brand of football which was immensely quick. It was predominantly counter-attacking against senior sides. Excuse the slight, the slight sniff I've got. I hope you can edit that out. But he, he, he understood before I think it was fashionable that if you played with high speed and great intensity, you could unpick sides who perhaps had better squads or better 11s. And it was at Almeria that he would win prizes for up and coming coach. And it was at Almeria where you knew, you know, that feeling. As, as a big club in England traditionally, Villa fans maybe don't have to feel it, but when you're at maybe one of the lesser known or, or lower achieving clubs in Scotland or England, and like Wolves, you, yeah, like like. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to play with you there. You, <laughs> do, do you do you think you've got Wolves fans listening that that will work? Uh, I do, I, I don't go down with Villa fans. If they are, then why? Okay, very good. <laughs> I think we've all seen let's say Watford when they rose with mm. Evan John's investment no big team wanted to play and they absolutely knew how Graham Taylor's side was going to play and although Watford have still to, for now to this they've never been a giant club they've never particularly expanded in size they've still got relatively modern, modest I mean relatively modest I'm not going to abuse of training facilities you knew for many seasons, we went to Watford. That their brand of football would be difficult. That people would be saying, "Here's a big club going to roll over again. They're going to get knocked over." And for a while at Almeria, that was the case. It was enough to bring him to Valencia. Now he took over at Valencia long before um, Peter Lim was on the scene. But he took over Valencia when it was a chaotic and nasty and angry club. Um, the previous, the president had appointed um, Ronald Koeman as the previous coach. He'd won them the cup, but it had been a disastrous reign where he was asked to to weed out senior players, to stop senior players having power in the dressing room. And he took Alberta, captain midfielder, Spain midfielder, and Miguel Angulo, and to some extent Canizares. And effectively, they, they 
um, complained that he, they'd, he'd, they'd been sacked. Mm-hmm. And there were court cases and there were, you know, players' union and at Revista de la Liga. I persuaded the producer who was right behind it to go over, send a camera crew over, and we did an interview, almost like a panorama document interview about how has this been allowed to happen? It's shocking. It's absolutely out of order. And and the club was in chaos. And the next man in was Unai Emery. And the club, because of debts, had to sell players. So they consistently sold footballs of the quality of Mata and David Silva and David Villa. Yet um, Emery, after his first season in charge, took them uh, consistently into the Champions League, took them reasonable distances in the Champions League, but when he was eliminated and then down to the Europa League to the semi-final place. But more importantly, he played a role in keeping that club alive because the debts were huge. To qualify for the Champions League while you're selling your biggest players is an extremely difficult job. He There was a brand of football at Valencia which was extremely interesting and exciting to watch. Mestalla was a happy place. And there's a, there's a decent correlation between Valencia and who Villa would like to how Villa would like to think of themselves. Big club, great stadium. If you get the fans on board, massively uh, noisy and supportive environment. If the fans are pissed off and they're, they're having a go at you and a moan at you, it can be a place where some players shrivel. And therefore, there's no way you can say it's going to be the same because those are different times. Spain's a different league from England. There was less gigantic investment in both Spanish football and English football at that stage, but the model of for those who want to go and look at what its record um, is like at Valencia, it, the the record would encourage them both in terms of achievement, league placing, the, the type of atmosphere you inherited, and what kind of football Valencia played because they were you know they were good to watch. Mm. Yeah, now, and, look, and... I'm gonna I'm gonna chunt 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 around until you stop me, but you asked me about his time in Moscow. Really, in all honesty. Look across every manager's CV, um, and, and there are going to be times where they tripped up, even the Canadians. Mm. So, I, you know, I consider it almost an irrelevance that he went there and it didn't click. He was there six or seven months. Well, if you're a, a, a spider who doesn't speak Russian and you take the money and you're attracted by that, I can do it thing, which all great men and women in sport, like the first, it doesn't matter if it's a playing challenge or if it's a transfer between clubs or if it's a manager, team number, what's the first fucking thing that I've got? A great, a great. They go. I can do that. Yeah. So he goes there. It doesn't work. So, so I mean, if you don't mind me saying so, so fuck. Yeah. Now after that, if you think about um, his again, he takes over at a difficult time for Seville when Marcelino has just been sacked in it. At Seville, because I know this is one of your things you want to get onto. At Valencia, he had a director of football. He wasn't in charge of uh, Emery. Wasn't in charge of signings, and and there was a club where savings were important. Mm. Getting money in the door was vital. Um, at Seville, it wasn't like it was living a lap of luxury, but you had one of the great, one of the great um, football directors there in Monchi, Monchi. Who, yeah. who will listen to a coach and will try and uh, make a good jigsaw piece by clicking with the coach. But it's Monchi who decides ultimately. Monchi's scouting, Monchi's system, Monchi's plans for the club in case the coach isn't there very long. And yet, Without a massive, massive say, he took a bunch of players and irrespective of who came in and went out each summer, it, he, he performed massively well. If you want to go and look at the three European trophies that he won, go and look at the circumstances of each one. 
Go and look at the ones that are won on a penalty shootout. Go and look at the one that's won, um, I think, 3-2 uh, in the most dramatic seesaw game. Go look at the one where, I don't know if you remember the first half against Liverpool. Yeah. Relatively new in the door, match played in Burn. Um, I happened to be speaking to the ex-Wigan manager, Paul Jewell, the next day, and he said, listen, a bunch of Liverpool lads, ex-players, fans, and I went to a golf club to to watch and celebrate and after the first half we were we were really pretty pissed off that it was going to be so easy it was, yeah. it, it was 1-0 Liverpool going on four and yet with really a couple of one I think one personal change and a couple of tactical changes Sevilla didn't just score three in the second half they wiped the floor with Liverpool mm. now that's the essence of the man you've just bought you can't do it every time not every match is a cup final where it's all or nothing over 90 minutes, 120 if you want. Yet, that cuts right to the heart of the guy you've bought because in terms of his planning, in terms of his match reading, it's not that he's unflawed, it's not that he's perfect, but you have purchased one of the guys who's most able to manage a situation, whether it's the exact game is evolving exactly the way he thought it would, Mm-hmm. or whether he's, he's got to adapt hugely. Ultimately, it's always the players. But to the extent that a coach or manager can influence things, in Unai Emery, you've bought one of the good ones, and that is that was shown dramatically, I think, by the way he handled, um, as a VNL coach, the, the second leg at Arsenal, mm-hmm. where injuries hurt him, where Arsenal got the, the last goal of the 2-1 win in, in, in uh, Magic Island, VNL, and in theory, I think, without complacency, both Arsenal and probably everybody in England thought, well, I no problem now. The way goal, all right, the way goals didn't count, but they'd scored, they, they hadn't lost 2-0. They brought it back, and I think it was widely expected that that was going to be a, not a walk in the park, it was a guaranteed win for Arsenal, and, and on they go, no. And if you look at the way in which Villarreal in Dansk coped with the passages where Manchester United had so much more of the ball, had so many more opportunities. And again, I watched both training sessions, full training sessions in dance the night mm. before the Europa League final. And United looked significantly better in terms of finishing, attitude, mentality. But, but VRL's work on tactical aspects and work, work on how to defend as a team, I saw more of the next night. And it ultimately... When um, when it goes to a full twenty-two man penalty shootout, and your keeper saves one and scores the next one, that's <laughs> that's a little bit of any coach's realm to say, "Ah, that was me, that was me." Yeah, but that, that, that was still... that was an amazing sequence. And I remember, you know, it was you don't see too many twenty-two man penalty shootouts like that, and, and what a way to no. win it as well. And you no, know, and it just heroes, the heroes, the, the keeper. The man of the match was Capu at Watford, mm. but but I would refer again. Does anybody tuning in here now, Neil? They might like or understand or disagree with my words, whatever. But the 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 fact is, we live in an age where they can go and look for themselves. Mm. So if you can get downloads of of that game, the Arsenal second leg, um, the Liverpool final in Burn against Sevilla, or the Belfast game against Chelsea, or for example, as much as the, the Bayern Munich draw away puts them through and it's an extremely good result, you know, they were pummeled there, they had the right tactics, but on another day you lose. 
Mm. The game to go and look at is Villarreal winning, I think, by three in Turin against Juventus because you know that 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 tactic that night of we don't want to play, not just look at not part of us. Whenever they had the ball, they just passed it around their own defence third all night. As in, come on, here we are. Yeah, here's the here's the stinky here's the stinky chat we're setting for you. Come and get the ball if you want it. We're not going to play. We're not just going to defend. We're just we're going to kick the ball, but we're not going to venture anything. And Juventus were like all night. The fans were like, yeah, okay, we see this, but we'll punch you soon. Yeah, yeah, we see. It. We'll punch you soon. By seventy-five minutes in, they were ultra frustrated. They got caught. They got caught in the break. They went. It's only one 0 They charged forward and they got sucker punched twice more. And mm. it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't beautiful nineteen seventy Brazil football. It was extremely cagey. It was extremely tactical. But fuck my old sea boots. It worked. It was clinical. I remember that game as well. And I think that's what Villa would like. That's what all Villa fans would like. Is you know we've been horribly non-clinical, if that's even the way you we would phrase it, over the last probably the last two calendar years. And what you see with the Sevilla team or what you see with his Sevilla team, the likes of Carlos Baca coming in, at, at like his angled runs that Carlos Baca would make or or yeah. even with uh, with Villarreal, when you would see he'd get the best out of players who were like like uh, Ibora, for 34 years of age, Edin Capu, Francis Coughlin, thrown on the scrap heap of Premier League football very early and, and, and kind of thrown away. Raul Albiol, who is probably four times my age. I don't know. I think he's what? He must be touching 40 at this stage. And being able to pair them up with the likes of the Pau Torres and the Jeremy Pinos and and the Dan Jumas. And and, and I suppose my next question for you is that, um, and you mentioned when he was at Sevilla that he, and and when he was at, at, at Valencia, he didn't have too much kind of say over transfers. When he got to Villarreal, would he have had more of a say over the transfer policy, uh, and and was he was was he willing to pluck from the academy at Villarreal? And um, because we do think of all these older players that Villarreal had, and the kind of the motley crew for fourteen million that was a that was assembled. But was he adept in playing that market intelligently and utilizing the the, the academy prospects himself? Yeah, if, if you don't mind me being a little bit pedantic, you know, yeah. I think I think you're you're really close to the bullseye on a lot of the things you've said there about the market. But to be specific, and I know this, having talked to Munchie in general, mm. at Sevilla, Munchie will, will involve the manager. Listen, it'll slightly depend on which manager he's getting on yes. best with, but, but the, the club has a system. The club has a transfer style. The club has an idea of how it wants to play, and it's the manager who must fit into it. That means that repeatedly um, a manager might be asked, this player, are you happy? Or, for example, when Lopetegui got Suso, if the player he'd worked with before, he very much wanted him. Uh, that, that was really important. Um, again, when although Lopetegui was about to be sat, Isco was a, was a player that fits certain criteria from, from Monty. I think he took a little bit of a risk, but it was very much Lopetegui pushed. So when I am and he worked at a club whereby if we talk about the old style in England managers running the transfer market, then no. Okay. If we talk about was it Sully Monchi and those three um, Europe League victories on the trot and, and the money they made out of the Champions League qualification and group stages and whatever thereafter, uh, 
was it simply that once you said that that's your lot um, when I deal with it? No, there, there was a there was a degree of involvement. There was a degree of uh, teamwork in in how they signed, who they sold, and and when the club said we need to make money on this player, that's when kind of when I wasn't in a position to say, but no, he can't go for for any sake. Please don't let him go. That that wasn't the situation. So mm-hmm. think about it as a jigsaw that sort of tessellates a little bit. And with um, Villarreal, that was one of the sore points when he said yes to Newcastle in that when he'd specifically asked for backing and for certain players, they have a fully, they have a slightly different setup than that of Monchi, but they have a fully functioning um, uh, football director department and football research department. And Unai am recently got a, a slightly bigger say. And he got a bigger say because he was brought in by the son of the owner, who clearly when you're you're working up to your, in your dad's company, whatever company that is, yeah. there comes a stage where you want to prove yourself, you want to show your you know cut teeth and prove to everybody, listen, I'm, I'm I am my own man, I'm not you know my dad's son, and and, and therefore once Emery became uh, young Reuters bet, um, he got slightly more say in in bringing in a couple of players, and, and you're right. He, like, for example, Foyth was vastly important to Emery. Foyth was one where he stressed, we, we have to get this. Um, Lo Celso was another one where it, it's not as if it went against the club, but Emery's voice was, was dominant there. There are others. Um, but it, it, nobody should think... And, you know, I'd, I'd still have to learn a little bit about how Villa operate in the transfer market. But nobody should think that you're getting a manager who who went out and scoured the market and built um, the the four Europa League trophy lifts that you're talking about. Just as when he was at Arsenal, you know, he came within a hair's breadth of winning the Europa League again. But people wouldn't really talk about, like, he went out and bought all the players that he, he had at Arsenal. Mm. That wasn't the case. So... While I think he'll have asked at Villa to have, it won't surprise me if there are a couple of players at Villarreal are a club which sell. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah, I, listen, I, truthfully, I, I don't know for sure. But for example, I know for sure that a Premier League club um, gave the price of Villarreal for Danjuma in the summer, but the Premier League club's man, manager went, Nah, that's not for me, thank you very much. Now, that price was wholly affordable. Villarreal wanted the money in order to square their accounts. Mm. All I'm saying to you, I'm not saying here's a transfer deal for sure, but Nanjuma is a potentially exceptional player. He's already very good, very quick, two-footed, um, a decent finisher, and he's got a chance of a good show at the World Cup. Um if, if if Villa need goals, <laughs> yeah, which we do. Just, just a little wolves joke there. Um, <laughs> then, as long as Emery sufficiently liked Danjuma, Danjuma had some problems with some senior players in the club because he's a very introverted, religious guy, and there were some mm-hmm. people at the Villa dressing room who were, I don't think, particularly welcoming to him or helpful to him, in my opinion. Um. And that I'm using as an example 
of a deal that could very easily be done and a deal that's well within the list price range. Yeah, and and I know that well. There was rumors and there was talks and there was there was quite heavy rumors at times during the off season when Aston Villa just before their purchase, Diego Carlos, that they were heavily involved in negotiations for Pau Torres as well. And I'm I'm just I'm trying to you know at this stage we're kind of it's like being in that FBI room where you've got pictures in the wall and you've got your pieces of string and you're joining them around to see if you can figure out the pieces to the puzzle. And uh, it would be an interesting one to see if he does go back and 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 to raid his 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 former haunt because uh, uh, you know that was going to be my next question was would Villarreal be um, a club that could be um, enticed into selling some of those big players based on the fact that they, they, that they the, feel the, they can rebuild? The owner and the president there, again, this is directly from interviews that I've had with him, has a perspective that, so for example, um, the last one time they were in the Champions League, they, they had a horrendous group, which I think included Bayern Munich, Napoli and another brutal club. I don't, I don't think it was United. And they came bottom, um, they were taken apart, they weren't ready for it, and they were relegated that season. Mm-hmm. And that season, uh, Fernando Reutz, the senior, the, the billionaire owner, made sure that everybody's wages were kept, made sure that everybody was kept on. But he he put personal money in so that the Sevilla kept on an even keel. But he said from that point onwards, not that he wouldn't put his own money in again, but he said, there'll be a time when either I'm not here or my money's not here, and this has to be uh, a club which is uh, healthy financially. So there's a big emphasis on that still. And therefore, Villa, I'm sure, want the same thing themselves, but they have a slightly different setup, slightly different rules in England, slightly different, no, not slightly different, vastly different revenue streams. And therefore, it, 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 if, when I wanted a player in most of the clubs in Spain, most, um, including Villarreal, and they went and met the buyout clause or something close to it. Villarreal are a club which are not desperate to sell, but do trade. They do mm-hmm. trade, and they do Back want their account, They want their accounts kept in order. They don't want debt. So you, you're right to say that there are opportunities. Whether Pau Torres, if he moved, would choose Villa. I think, mm. in my opinion, January market not. Yeah. Um, if they'll look better and are high up the league, given that both Manchester United and Liverpool, I know one of those two clubs phoned me about him. So while he didn't go there, there are clubs with big budget, bigger wages, and a better European profile that have liked him recently. So, you know, I, I, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but price wise, it could happen. And mm-hmm. there'll come a stage at which Villarreal do sell him. So I think the broader way to answer you accurately, Neil, is that um, Villarreal, with that manager, if he performs well, if he settles, if it's looking positive at uh, at Villa Park, you do have the capacity to go back and and sign well in La Liga. And where the difference is now, um, when Villarreal and Sevilla were signing, predominantly they weren't signing Spanish players. And therefore, Unai wasn't the expert. Oh, yes. when Villa are signing, and if they're looking to sign players in La Liga, whether they're Spanish or not, Emery is the expert. Yeah. His degree of influence in transfer market dealings, if you go back to Spain, from my understanding of it, is likely to be higher. 
Yeah, and that's that's exciting. I think that is really exciting because uh, it's uh, it's it's a rich area. It's a vast area, and an area that obviously you know has gone through has a lot of hidden gems in it. Considering that they get people from South America probably a lot easier and quicker than 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 English game does, and obviously they're very well adept at creating their own players and 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 uh, schooling their own players. I just have one final question for you, Graham. As I say, we're gone. We're, we're gone much more over the time than, than I promised you because it's just been a riveting conversation, but it's a very simple one. Do you think Unai Emery will succeed with Aston Villa in the Premier League? Look, he's certainly got the equipment to, and, and you're a club where I think you've taken a reasonable amount of time to think about this appointment. Now, I, I've said this before, and I mean it, so I'm going to repeat it now. It's hard working for him. Mm. Um, you've got used to stories about Pep Guardiola's intensity, Rafa Benitez's intensity, and while um, Unai is a different man and, and, and there's a different brand of football, in, in terms of training and match preparation, he's every bit as intense. The Villa players will not, I stress, will not ever experienced anything like it good i think some of them won't be ready for it yeah there is a more serious point in that he, he i did an interview with him not long before the liverpool first leg in the semi-final last season and i talked to him about the stresses and strains about how much you can ask of players i just visit there in terms of re- recuperation and a number of matches but what's the right amount of information to give them how many briefings do they need to be submitted to? And he said, look, I will always, I will always err on the side of giving them too much, not too little. Now, occasionally that can mean an hour, two hours of video briefing. That flies in the face, Neil, of what the, the majority of his ilk, his brethren, are doing right now. At mm-hmm. the moment, what, what the majority of coaches are wanting to do is get very tightly edited very specific and very short video packages to players whose brains they think are either tired or overloaded or not good enough to take in more. Emery doesn't work like that. Training sessions, if you get to see them, I've seen several of them. And and the, the one in Belfast prior to the Chelsea game was astonishing. The way in which there's a phrase, there's a word called basculation which is like, vasculation is, is about balance. It's about the scales. And I remember talking to a couple of pros who played in England and spent the best thing this game has got is shuffling across, which is yes. fuck all used. But it's when every man in a team is supposed to move in unison when they don't have the ball. And to do that, Emily had eight, nine and ten players moving with their arms linked around one another. And moving at speed and playing a rondo where two sets of eight have got their arms linked together and they've got to try and press and close the guys um, who've got the ball. And watching it, you'd think, well, even explaining that to people. I saw a game where there was it was 8v8 in a tight space, I mean, maybe a quarter of the pitch, with one, two, three, four, five, six comedians which means six players mm-hmm. who stand either side of the goalposts in the middle of each half. Um, that means two, four, six, eight, yes. 
and their players let a wall. You can play you, those players play for both sides, so you can you know the guy you're closing down one second when when you've got the ball, you can play it off in a one two or and watching it was like fucking football in a phone booth, and they played <laughs> yeah. that, and it was utterly spectacular. Now that is before we get into the way in which players will be deluged with video information and lectures. Mm. So it doesn't mean that because he's that's his method and, and that he succeeded, that that's good for every club or every set of players. It doesn't. So when you say, will he succeed? I don't know. <laughs> I do know that you brought somebody of extreme enthusiasm, somebody with extreme passion for the game, somebody who is not simply in England for the ego and the profile and the money, although you know, tick all those boxes when you're back in the Premier League. That that that, that does apply. It's not his main motivation. He's competitive, he's used to winning, he will want to win trophies, not just matches. And everything the, the, the answer to your question will one hundred percent be based upon how quickly the players accept or enjoy his ultra demanding methods because you know very well you've had a couple of managers it was painful losing Dean Smith um, I, I imagine there was a degree of excitement and expectation when Stephen Gerrard came in after a good time at Rangers maybe not everybody mm-hmm. but he, he he had done well at Rangers there's no argument about that both in Europe and uh, domestically and and now if another manager goes and, and obviously prior to Dean Smith there was a reasonable turnover of managers too. Yeah. You're a side you're a side that expects to be, you know, hovering mid table and challenging for a Europa League place and in a cup final every couple of seasons. That I think at the moment is the expectation. It's not the lifetime expectation as a villa, but I think ballpark that's where most fans would like to be right now as a next stage. And if you know, and all this shit he gets for a good evening, which he's, uh-huh. he's not the least bit bothered about, but there's a pigeonhole and there's a categorizing of Unai Emery as as an eccentric foreigner and and if the players don't take to him well and his methods well then it, it can be a bumpy ride in, in next June so I, 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 for me to be confident say don't worry perfect appointment your club are going to thrive and you'll be you'll be minimum top 10 by the end of the season I wish I could say that with absolute certainty but what I can say with certainty is you have hired an a guy who has not lost any edge, not lost any desire, is still as tactically astute as the guy who got to, you know, a couple of Europa League semi-finals, a Champions League semi-final, and has serially won Europa Leagues. You know, and if you go back and tot up the types of opponents that Sevilla and Villarreal beat on route mm. to those finals, and then at the different ways in which they won those finals, you you bought a gem. So those. For, for those who don't know how to react to him and work well with them, then they're the problem. That's amazing. Graham, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I could listen to you for hours and hours, and I have throughout the, throughout the, the last uh, 25, 30 years of, of, of following football. And uh, I know Graham didn't, didn't ask me to do this or anything, but if you guys aren't part of the big interview with Graham Hunter, uh, get on it as well. Uh, Graham's, it's on Graham's Patreon page. And uh, for any of our Irish fans out there, he has an interview with Emma Byrne, uh, who everybody uh, here will know, Irish uh, you, Ireland's most you. capped woman. You are well informed. You yeah. are. I didn't know you were going to do that. 
I'm grateful because obviously you want to communicate with listeners. And I am grateful because of all the, probably of almost all the interviews we've done, although it's quite wrong, Emma might be one of the least high profile in general, yet from knowing her before the interview, from having researched her career, from having listened to her now as a, as a football analyst, I genuinely think she's exceptional. I enjoyed the interview. She's extremely forthright and communicative. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, for those who bother to tune in, they'll enjoy it. But you're, you're right that, you know, her career at Arsenal in particular, um, her role in the striking 17 for Ireland that, that brought yeah. a better degree of professionalism and has to be linked directly to the, the win at Hampden and the qualification for Ireland's first big tournament. This is a this is a footballer, a woman of, of extreme substance, and she's also very funny. So, Neil, I appreciate the plug. Thank you. No problem at all. Absolutely no problem, Graham. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. And thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I am really enthused about Unai Emery's uh, tenure at Aston Villa. You won't, have, you won't get a more in-depth analysis as you've got off, Graham, there. And once again, I thank you so much for his time. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. And all that's left to say is thank you, Graham, again, and up the Villa. Up the Villa. Sports Social Podcast Network.